Colorado's 8th Congressional District is brand new, created because the state's population has grown, particularly in the North Denver suburbs, which are in this new district. To help you choose among the candidates, we conducted job interviews. From CPR News, this is Who's Gonna Govern? Your chance to hear candidates for Colorado's top elected offices in their own words. This time on the podcast, Barbara Kirkmeyer. The Republican is currently a state senator and used to be a Weld County commissioner. We spoke September 21st, and she told me about the local zoning issues that prompted her to get into politics. It was about landfills. And then also other like fly ash sites and hazardous medical waste sites, all within a five to 10 mile radius of where I lived on a farm in Southwest Weld. And, you know, I was minding my own business. I owned a dairy farm at the time, had two young children. I also owned a flower shop. And then all of these, like I said, all of these waste disposal facilities were looking to be sited out in my area in the unincorporated part of Weld County. And when I contacted my county commissioner, Over a course of time, he basically told me it didn't matter. It didn't matter about me. It didn't matter about my community. Uh, It didn't matter about us. You know, this is how it was just going to be. And then he told me I was just chasing windmills. And when he said that to me, it just really ticked me off. And I thought, that's not right. It does matter. And you're going to be really darn sorry when I catch a windmill. (laughs) Does does this person know that they are the reason? Do do you think they know? They they might now. They might. Okay. (laughs) This story has been told enough. At at the time, I'm not sure if he did. But, you know, and when I ran, I I was young and I ran for a county commissioner and I won the seat by 400 votes. And it was a tight race. And I won that by going out and talking to folks and going door to door and listening to them and finding out what their issues were, because not everybody had the same issues as I had. And when I became a county commissioner, I will just say it's a job that I love. And I feel like I had the opportunity to truly impact the lives in a very positive way. I mean, I led my county to zero debt, lowered property taxes, and also, you know, reduced regulation. And then I I got involved in a lot of things. Do you think that Congress is going to be that gratifying? I'm not sure, to be very honest with you. I'm just not sure. I hope so. Because, you know, I said this a few times, I'm not going there to make a point. I want to go there to make a difference. I have certainly bugged the Republican leadership enough to the point where, because I'm like, we can't just be running to win. That's not what I'm about. And even like when my grandsons ask me, like, what are you doing this for? And I say, for you. But when I talk to the leadership and I'm telling them, we we can't just be running to win. We have to be able to be telling how we are going to govern and how we're going to get our country back on track. Let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, The country back on track. Give me a key way you think that it's on the wrong track, Barbara Kirkmeyer. I think there are several places where we're off track. And I think the first thing is you just you don't have to go any farther than our economy and look at the inflation. When I'm out walking and talking, you know, to people at their doors or at festivals or in parades, the number one issue I hear is is the cost of living and how expensive it is. Do you know that in Colorado it's eleven thousand dollars more in twenty twenty two than it was in twenty twenty to pay for food? and gas, and shelter, you know, your housing needs, transportation, electricity. And now even interest rates are going up yet again, 0.75%. So that's the main issue. And we've got to work on curbing inflation and reducing the cost of living. It's hurting everyone. So that 
uh, is a global phenomenon right now. In other words, many countries are struggling with inflation. Uh, it is not by any means specific to Colorado or to the United States. What is a way you would bring inflation down uh, in the face of, you know, things that are beyond your control, hurricanes and wars and viruses? The government needs to stop spending. The government spends way too much. In fact, the president with his student loan debt, close to another trillion dollars. But doesn't that but help we the have... very families that you no. uh, say are struggling? No. Forgiving their student loan debt Forgiving their student loan debt. It impacts approximately 15 to 17% of the people in the United States that went to college. And the 83% that didn't go to college are paying for it. So they couldn't afford their own college, and now they're going to pay for somebody else's college. So no, that doesn't help them. We are already $90,000 in debt for every man, woman, and child in the United States. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about, like, my grandchildren. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm come from very modest backgrounds. We were poor when I was a kid. We didn't even have indoor restroom facilities. And, you know, I have six siblings. My grandmother lived with us. My great uncle lived with us. So there are 11 of us around that table. And on the farm, we were all expected to work on the farm. I mean, at five years old, I'm out feeding calves. My parents taught me early on when they, they didn't give me a heifer calf from when I started my 4-H project when I was nine years old. They sold me a heifer calf. So I learned about debt. I learned about paying off your debt. I learned about work and hard work, and that from working comes opportunity. I was able to raise enough animals, raised like seven or eight animals that I eventually sold off, and was able to pay for a large portion of my college education by working for it. Let me ask you specifically about the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so it did a whole host of things, prescription drug price reform under Medicare, investment in energy security and climate protection, more money for IRS tax enforcement, also the creation of a 15% minimum tax rate on large corporations. Uh, would you have voted for that act? No, I would not have voted for that act. And it's coming out now, even showing up and proving that it's not an inflation reduction act. They increased IRS um, with the IRS agents. I wouldn't have agreed to that. And when we talk about the increase, 15% increased taxes, on that's on small business. Well, these are on larger businesses, well, What would you consider a large business? It's on $1 billion in profit. That's not necessarily small business. Depends on which business it is. But we're still crippling businesses. And then you know what all that does? It just increases the cost of services and increases the cost of goods. Do you think someone like a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk is paying their fair share? I don't know. I don't know what they pay in. I mean, if we're looking at to make sure that we're having a fair tax system, I'm with you on that. But I don't know what they pay in. So I couldn't tell you if they're paying their fair share or not. I think I pay more than my fair share. CPR has surveyed folks across the state to learn what issues matter to them this election. In the new 8th Congressional District that you're seeking to represent, Capri Kaur of Firestone uh, says education is important. Schooling is like my biggest thing because my son's in Boulder Valley, but there's like not a lot of resources and like materials to help him because he has like a speech delay and all that. So like, I don't, I don't know. They just don't have enough like resources to help them. You serve on the education committee in the Colorado Senate and have had a voice in school finance and early childhood education. Um, do you see that work continuing if you're elected to the U.S. House? And, and how so? N noting that there's a lot of local control, obviously, with schools. Yes, there, there is a lot of local control. And, and yes, I would see it continuing. 
to try and answer specifically, I'm not sure that I know how, but I know that it's a passion of mine. I know that as a state senator, I was able to work with folks across the aisle, and we were able to pass legislation just this year that increased funding for the special education per pupil. And it was a promise that had been made to school districts and to the children that we would fund it to a certain level. And that was back in 2006. We never got to that level. We never kept our promise at the legislature. Even though I was not part of that legislature, I still feel like when, when General Assembly comes through and says, we're going we're gonna to put this much money towards special education in this case, that we should be doing that. And so we were able to not only get the funding increased by about $90 million more per year, but also get an inflationary factor on it. So part of that funding increase for special education came from federal dollars. Yes. And uh, there's a little bit of a tension then that I'm hearing, which is to say that you celebrated a federal infusion of money into special education. But at the same time, you're saying the federal government spends too much. Uh, Is that a contradiction? No. No, not at all. I think part of the problem that a lot of governments have is that they don't prioritize or they don't really sit down and think about what is government supposed to be spending their, the taxpayer dollars on, right? So as a county commissioner, we set priorities. We understand what our role is, what government is supposed to be funding, because government should be doing those things for the people that they cannot do for themselves. And to me, education is one of those things that government should be funding. In fact, we have a constitutional requirement here to fund a public school system and provide free education. So that's why most of the funding comes from the state. And then we have local governments here, school districts, that also provide funding. So no, I don't think it's a contradiction. I think it's a clear message on what I believe is a priority of government. But you've you've lauded what it means to have an education. And you've also uh, been very critical of loan forgiveness. I think that um, people need to be accountable for their decisions and their choices, in this case with education. And if you are choosing and you know that you're taking out a loan so that you can go get a degree out of a higher education system, then I think you're responsible to pay that loan back. I will tell you this, though. As a Weld County Commissioner, we were able to have um, an investment that had happened a very long time ago where we owned land underneath the hospital. And that land sold off, and it was about $60 million that we had. And we put that into a trust for education. It was called Bright Futures. It's not a scholarship program. It's an actual grant program to uh, individuals, children, kids that are in the school system that have resided in Weld County for at least two years and have graduated from high school. They get a grant of up to 2000 per semester to go to any four-year college, any community college, any secondary education, post-secondary training or education certified program. So if they want to go learn to be a welder and they go to specialized training there, they could use the funds for that. Um, We thought of it as a workforce initiative. We were providing for and investing back into our community, into our citizens. Aren't those kids making a choice that you say they should have to pay for? I mean, again, I, I go back to what seems to me to be a contradiction. So you're saying in Weld County, it's okay for those public funds to be used for those kids who choose a higher education. So but not so for the federal government. It wasn't just for higher education. It was for any type of um, post-secondary training or education. And it was a tool that we were able to use because of something that came back to us. You know, when we had had an investment into a county hospital, and now we still own the land, that that money was coming back to us. And instead of just 
putting it maybe into a road or something, we invested it back into our community, dollars that had been invested, you know, 100 years ago kind of thing. So, no, I don't think it's a contradiction. I'm just saying I think there are ways that government can invest back into their community without raising taxes, and we didn't raise taxes. When it comes to school athletics, you've pledged to support the goals of nine pack. Uh, meaning you wish to prevent trans women athletes from competing in women's sports or using women's locker rooms. I want to note that fully 82% of trans individuals have contemplated suicide. Uh, Do you see a link between that figure and policies that single out trans people? Uh, No, I don't. Uh, but to be very honest with you, again, I have not necessarily done all the research on that. But no, I, I don't see the connection. What I see is, is that an individual who's born as a biological male is now competing against females who have worked their entire life, you know, to get to the level of, of you know, being in college sports and really trying to apply themselves there. And I don't think it is, I just don't think it's fair competition. I don't think that that's what was meant by Title IX either. So I'm, you know, I support Title IX, but I don't support biological males being able to compete in women's sports. I don't think that's fair. But they're trans women and they too have worked their whole lives to get to that point. I'm not sure that you can make that statement about everyone, but I would just say again that um, I just don't believe that biological males should get to compete against biological women in sports. I don't think that's fair. Weld County, where you've lived for 35 years, is one of Colorado's most reliably conservative, uh, with no doubt many voters who oppose abortion. And yet uh, the Washington Post, among other outlets, reported in August that you removed any mention of abortion from your campaign website. Uh, At last check, I couldn't find any reference to the issue. What does the removal tell anti-abortion activists about your commitment to that issue? My commitment has never changed. Why Why did your website then? It's a marketing tool. And I was running a campaign in a primary against three other Republicans. So it's a different campaign. It's a different web page. I mean, my web page changed from when I was a state senator running for office, from when I was a county commissioner running for office, because it's specific to the office and the position that I'm running for and the campaign that I'm in. I didn't scrub my whole web page. I didn't scrub my Facebook page. My comments are still on my Facebook page. You know, March for Life and the Rally for Life that was back in March of this year, my comments are still out there. I haven't changed that position. But do I look at my marketing tools and update them and revise them based on the election that I'm in, based on what I'm hearing at the door as issues? Yes, I do. Does so, that mean you're running to the center then? So you you had abortion up as an issue uh, when you were running against Republicans. Now you're running against a Democrat. Is this the kind of shift the middle that we often see from candidates on both sides? I'm it's still, as everyone is aware, I'm still pro-life. I have not changed that position. So I think, um, quite frankly, it must have been a slow news day. I took off a couple of things, the issues that aren't bubbling to the top as major concerns. I mean, you only have so much time. You only have so many points that you can make with people. I mean, it's not like people are going to go in and study my whole Web page. That just doesn't happen. I mean, I'm sure you did because you're in the media and, you know, and, and you're going to go look and see what I'm doing. But not everyone does that. So you only have so much time. And so, like I said, I had been talking to 
I mean, I've probably hit over 10,000 doors where I'm talking to people at their door and hearing what the issues are. And abortion is not coming up? uh, I would say maybe a handful of times. Seriously. The people who bring it up the most are politicians and the media. But what's coming up is about inflation and the cost of living, about, I mean, we're at a 40-year high. What else is coming up is education, just like the um, woman from Firestone stated. That was probably the third or fourth issue that came up at the top Mm -hmm. because people want choice. They want to be able to take their kids where they believe their children are going to have the best opportunity to get the greatest education that they can. Uh, But the number two issue that came up, safety, public safety. Those are the issues. And if you go look at my webpage, that's what I'm talking about. And what else came up? About the energy, the energy independence. And now we're energy dependent and how we've lost a lot of jobs in the energy sector in Congressional District 8. So that's what's on my webpage because that's what people out there that I'm talking to that live in the district, that they're saying to me. We will talk in just a moment about crime, uh, public safety. Uh, Let's put a finer point on your pro-life position if we could. Would you support a federal ban on abortions after 15 weeks, uh, which is the driving force behind Senator Lindsey Graham's proposal? So without speaking to a specific bill, because if I haven't seen the bill or read the bill, I'm not going to tell you that I'm specifically going to vote for one bill or another bill. I mean, I need to look at it just so so we're clear. But would I support a a ban on abortion after 15 weeks? Yes, I would. And you want that to be a federal ban, that you'd support a federal ban as as opposed to leaving it to the states? Yes, I would. Um, Because to me, it's a position of um, saving a few babies' lives. You know, so if I, for me, if I can save an innocent unborn child's life or not save any at all, I'm going to go with at least saving some babies' lives. So, yes, I would. You said in a 2014 debate that you voted to ban Plan B as a county commissioner. This is the so-called morning after pill. Uh, is that still your stance? That you yes, would wanna... because that was related to public funding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a constitutional amendment in this state that we don't pay for abortions, and we don't use public funding for it. So that's what that was tied to. So you do not want to see a ban in general on Plan B. You just want to make sure there's no public funding for it. Correct. Do I have that right? Okay. On the subject of public safety, you've said that you'd support the death penalty as a possible sentence for drug dealers when someone dies of a fentanyl overdose. What evidence do you have that it would be a deterrent? That the death penalty would be a deterrent? Um, Well, we have plenty of evidence to show that when you don't punish criminals, that there is no deterrent and there's no incentive for them to stop their activity. We've had a continuous flow of fentanyl coming across our southern border. I mean, to the point where uh, Biden's open border policy has made every state a border state. And our issue here in Colorado is we've had, what, over 1,100 deaths in the last year or so with regard to fentanyl overdose. We had a bill that was passed in 2019 that allowed for up to four grams of possession, a.k.a. distribution of fentanyl. And our numbers skyrocketed. We're number two in the nation. We don't want to be number one. Fentanyl overdose is the number one killer of people between 18 and 45 years of age. So I think there should be severe penalties. We in this state, and I didn't vote for it, but my opponent did, voted to essentially decriminalize fentanyl. 
by saying that it's no longer a felony up to four grams and that um, it became a misdemeanor. And then this year we had the opportunity to listen to law enforcement, to the law enforcement that were saying, you know what, legislature, you're complicit in leaving drug dealers on the street because of your laws. And we had the opportunity to fix it and we didn't do it. Well, there was a fix, but it didn't go far enough in your opinion. No. Okay. And it, and it doesn't go far enough in law enforcement's opinion either. You mentioned uh, Biden's open border policy. I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. U.S. arrests at the southern border have topped two million a year for the first time. So plenty of interceptions at the border. You have called this a crisis. Um, keeping in mind that the 8th Congressional District is heavily agricultural, which I don't have to tell you, um, it relies on migrant labor. How would you work towards or would you work towards bipartisan immigration reform? And what might that look like? So first of all, Biden does have an open border policy. You can't and, cross the border legally and millions of people. But he essentially has an open border policy. Millions of people are being intercepted at the border. That's not an open border. And I'm not sure if your number is correct or not about. It is. Two million people being arrested. There are people that are turned back because there's the requirement that they have to be turned back. But if it is, it is. But it's still an open border policy. We still have people who are coming across the border, coming through the backyard instead of the front door. So with regard to your question and immigration, yeah. and I believe we do need immigration reform. And when I talk to my friends in agriculture, they will tell you the same thing. But it starts with securing our border. Uh, it is a national crisis because of all of the drugs that are coming across, especially fentanyl. Just in the last year alone, over 5 million pills have been seized. That's just what's been seized. We don't even know what's come across that we don't know, but we know that it's getting up into our state and it's going out through other states in the United States as well. Over 11,000 pounds of pure fentanyl seized at the border. We don't know how much actually came across, but we know what was seized. So after you secure the border, the next step is I think we need to look at the dreamers. You know, the children that were minors that came here didn't know. I think we need to look at that process and see what we can do because it's my understanding. And again, I would have to do some more research here, but it's just my understanding at this point that like every two years they're filling out a bunch of paperwork. And I don't necessarily, I don't know for certain how that all works. I'm willing to go find out, but I don't know why that's always necessary. I think we need to find a way for the dreamers because that's what our country is built on and they were here at no fault of their own kind of thing. So I think we need to work there. I think the other thing that we need to do with regard to immigration reform, um, I was just down at the border about three weeks ago and talking to the border patrol agents and getting the lay of the land. And it's not so much that people are coming across from Mexico, but more like Honduras and El Salvador, um, Venezuela, different countries in South America that are coming across our border. And they believe from what their comments to us that they are related to the, the drug cartels. But one of the things when I was talking, we were speaking with El Paso leaders. So the town of El Paso is where we were at. The city of El Paso is where we're at. When we were talking to them, one of the things that they believe would assist is if we were to help business development in these countries. So they didn't need to come here for a job, that they could find a job close to home kind of thing. And then lastly, I think we need to look at immigration reform and make sure that we have a fair but rigorous process when people come through the front door that they can become citizens. 
That's what our country was built on, you know. And so I think that needs to continue, and we need to look at that. When I've talked to folks in the agricultural industry, because you're right, this district sits on top of, oh, about a million acres of prime irrigated farmland. We have a lot of dairies in the district and feedlots. And when I talk to those agricultural producers, they're, they're talking about that we need to look at the H-2A program and the H-2B programs and figure out how do we make a fair process. One of the comments that I received from a, a dairy farmer, a very good friend of mine, was talking about, he goes, Barb, you got to make it so that families feel like they can come. And we've got to really look at this process. And, you know, I'm committed to doing that. And I think it's one of those areas, whether you're Republican or Democrat, that we need to come together. But it starts with securing the border. It starts with building the wall. In a neighboring congressional district, so Colorado's 7th, uh, Republican U.S. House candidate Eric Odland um, falsely says the 2020 election was, quote, undermined by fraud. Uh, he added that an illegitimate government is in power. Do you reject those remarks? Um, that Eric made? Yeah. I don't agree with them. I don't agree with his comments. I'm not an election denier person. I believe that Joe Biden is our legitimate president. I know from... Being a county commissioner and working with our county clerk, that it's not the secretary of state who runs the elections in this state. It's the county clerks. And I believe that our county clerk, who with her team has had, well, now it would have been over 19 to 20 years worth of experience, knows what they're doing. I know that we've had mail-in ballots for quite so many years now, that we didn't go through and change our rules at last minute. The secretary of state wasn't able to do that. And I also know that the Dominion voting machines are not hooked up to the Internet. Like some people think. So that's not true. So um, I just know from my experience what I know in talking to our IT director and talking about the integrity of the elections, that it was solid. I know it was in Well County. I believe it was in the state of Colorado. So, no, I'm, I'm not an election denier, and I, I don't agree with his comments. Much of the narrative around the 2020 election has come specifically from uh, former President Trump. Uh, would you vote for him if he ran again? I don't know who else is running for starters. So um, I, I don't know. It went, did I vote for him in 2016? Yes, I did. Did I vote for him in 2020? Yes, I did. If he is our Republican nominee, yes, I would probably vote for him. Uh, before we go, how about one example of where you have broken from your party? I think the election denial stuff is one example <laughs> of where I've probably not with the base with regard to that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Barbara Kirkmeyer is running for Congress in Colorado's new 8th Congressional District, stretching from Denver's north suburbs to Greeley. Kirkmeyer is currently a state senator. Hear from her opponent, Democrat Yadira Caraveo, right now in another episode of Who's Gonna Govern? Thanks to producer Carla Jimenez. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Need more info to help you figure out how to vote? The ballot is a lot to get your mind around, with big offices up for grabs and 11 statewide questions about whether to cut the income tax, legalize psychedelic mushrooms in Colorado, and much more. CPR News is here to help. Read explainers for each ballot measure and learn about the candidates, including the one you just heard from, in the 2022 Voter's Guide, online now in English and Spanish. Go to CPR.org.